people get nicknames all sorts of ways. Sometimes it's just pretty obvious based on your given name, as the, the Bobs and Bills and Freds of our congregation can tell you. Sometimes if you're super cool, you get to pick your own nickname, like, you know, certain star athletes. At least you get to pick it once. You may not get to change. Ocho Cinco is always Ocho Cinco. And sometimes, no matter what you try, your nickname just kind of picks you. Uh, if you're a Nats fan, right, our maybe closer, Jonathan Papelbon, he's always going to be the D.C. Strangler, and I don't think he chose that himself. <laughs> Nicknaming is clearly nothing new. It is long before Dwayne Johnson was The Rock, there was another rock. Simon, the brother of Andrew, a career fisherman, a man of the water, was inexplicably nicknamed Rock by Jesus the first time that they met. Jesus called him Kephas in Aramaic, that's Petros in Greek, it's Peter in English. And I would suspect it was doubtful at the time that Peter had a clue why Jesus gave him this nickname. I mean, if you're a water guy, being named Rock is not maybe the most flattering thing. <laughs> Possibly it's a result of the fact that as we look through the Gospels, Peter is quite often a rockhead. But over time, we see that he does, in fact, develop into the firm foundation on which the Jerusalem church would be built. He was indeed the rock, that there was a purpose to that nickname. Well, we're continuing our summer series through First Peter this morning, and as Peter is writing some 30 years after his first encounter with Jesus and actually getting this name, Peter the Rock, Peter the Rock tells us, well, we're a bunch of rocks too. So today's passage is First Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 8, as Mark has indicated. Peter writes, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. This passage speaks to the very the decision that every single person has to make when they hear the good news of Jesus Christ. And for those of us who choose to put our faith in Him as Lord and Savior, the passage is also describing the transformation that we experience when we make Him the cornerstone of our lives, when we follow Him. As we unpack this passage, we're going to explore three of Peter's main points in these verses. Now, the most fundamental point that Peter is making... There we go. ...is that Jesus always triggers a response in people. You and I each have to make a choice 
about who Jesus is to us. Because once he is described in a manner that is faithful to the content of the Gospels, faithful to what Matthew and Mark and Luke and John have to say about him, it is impossible to remain neutral about Jesus of Nazareth. Even choosing to not make a decision is a decision. Either you accept that he is indeed the Son of God as he claims, and then he becomes the cornerstone of your life. Or else his message becomes increasingly offensive to you, and he becomes a stumbling stone in your life. Peter unfolds this in the latter verses of today's passage and begins in verse 6, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. As we saw last week in this section, Peter is extensively quoting from the Old Testament. So if you really want to dig into 1 Peter, you get to learn a lot of Old Testament along the way. If you get the Bibles that have little margin notes that tell you what verses he's quoting, those are super useful with 1 Peter. So in this case, he is using Isaiah 28.16 to say that Jesus is the cornerstone of all of God's construction. As he builds his kingdom, it is Christ who must be the cornerstone against which everything else in God's kingdom is built, and on top of which everything is built. That Jesus is chosen and precious to God, and because he is, This verse is extremely emphatic in the original language that anyone who believes in Jesus will never be put to shame. Now that might seem curious because if you're a believer in Christ, you quite often may be put to shame in this life. You might well be mocked and ridiculed for your belief. After all, Jesus himself was stripped and beaten and spit on and mocked and whipped, and crucified. But in the eternal sense, we will never be put to shame for our faith in Jesus Christ, as verse 7 begins. So the honor is for you who believe. Because honor and salvation belong to those who truly believe that Jesus Christ is the risen Son of God. And why is that? Peter goes on in verse 7 to quote Psalm 118.22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus uses this verse himself to describe himself in the Gospel of Mark. The previous few verses in Psalm 118 are praise to God that reads, Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus is that stone that was rejected. You can't be much more rejected than being condemned to die a horrifically painful death on a Roman cross. But it's he whom God has made the cornerstone of the gate of righteousness. God has opened his gate, and thanks to Jesus, we can pass through. Now, this is not something we can do on our own, no matter how much we might want to or how hard we might try, because on the other side of that gate 
is God. The perfect and holy and all-powerful and all-knowing creator of the universe who just spoke it all into existence. And so to pass through the gate and to reach him requires perfect righteousness. Well, I don't know about you, but I was not even close to perfectly righteous last week. And if you total up a lifetime of unrighteous deeds, it's a big mountain that I've accumulated week after week. And when I compare that mountain of unrighteousness to God's actual standard, and I want to be clear, God's actual standard is not the North American version of God's standard, which is as long as my pile of righteousness exceeds my pile of unrighteousness, I'm good. That is not God's standard. That's actually the ancient Egyptian standard, rewashed for 21st century America. God's standard is zero unrighteousness. And so given that, I permanently disqualified myself this past week, just like I did the week before, and the week before that, and the week before that. And yet God loves us, and he made us to be in relationship with him, and and he wants us to be able to pass through this gate of righteousness and to come into his presence forever. But the challenge is that he is God. And so he can't just cheat a little bit. He can't just give us a path and be like, I'm going to ignore that bad stuff and just come on through because I love you. Because he's not only a loving God, he is a just God. And that means that there has to be punishment for all that unrighteousness. Scripture says that there has to be blood sacrificed in order to cover that unrighteousness. And it can't just be a little punishment or a little blood because we're talking about a mountain of unrighteousness that we stack up. And it has to all go away for us to get to God, for us to get to perfection. Ultimately, it requires an infinitely perfect and holy sacrifice to clean up all the unrighteousness of the world so we can pass through, so that we can reach that infinitely holy and perfect God who's on the other side of the gate. But God had a plan. And it's a plan that Peter reveals in these scriptures by his very choice of what he quotes from. Because in verse 8, He quotes Isaiah 8.14, saying that Jesus is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. It's critical for us to read those verses that lead up to that pronouncement in Isaiah 8. I'll save you the trouble of flipping back. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel. Isaiah is describing God as the stone of offense and the rock of stumbling. And Peter says very clearly, this is Jesus. So he's very neatly explained that Jesus is God. 
which is why his willing sacrifice on the cross is the only solution, the only way to accomplish that infinitely perfect and holy sacrifice needed to let us pass through the gates of righteousness. And so now it all makes sense. Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Son of God, Jesus who is God himself, went to that cross to make the infinite sacrifice that's necessary to make it possible for your sins and mine, your pile of unrighteousness and my mountain of unrighteousness to be forgiven. So as Paul says in Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And this is why there can be no neutral response to an accurate portrayal of Jesus. Either you will believe and receive honor and never be put to shame and receive forgiveness for your sins and receive eternal life, or you will not believe and Jesus will become a rock of offense and a stumbling stone. Let's be clear In the New Testament, whenever it uses the word stumble, it's talking about sin. So in rejecting Jesus, his message would become offensive. I think we see this. We hear this in our culture, right? Christians are offensive. Christians are rude. We will sinfully reject him if we turn down this message, right? Disobedience is the result. Verse 8 is making that clear. And so the truth of this scripture is that we should never be surprised by the hostility or rejection that we may experience when we share the good news of Jesus Christ. When we encounter people who are hostile to the gospel, who reject our message, well, certainly we should check and make sure how we presented the message, but most of the time it's not about us. It's not us they're rejecting. It's Jesus Christ they're rejecting. It's God himself. They are rejecting just as the people of Jerusalem did 2,000 years ago. If they can do that to Jesus when he's right there, we should not be surprised that it still happens to us today. We should be prepared for that. Ultimately, as verse 4 emphasizes, Jesus is a living stone rejected by men, but chosen and precious to the sight of God. So everyone who encounters him has a choice to make, one that has eternal consequences. Is he your cornerstone? Or is he your stumbling stone? Even if you have been coming to church all your life, even if you've been teaching Sunday school for years, even if you are a deacon looking around, even if you're a pastor... Look in the world today. Is Jesus your cornerstone? Or when you leave this place, is he more of a stumbling stone to living out your life the way you want to live it for yourself? For those of us who choose to put our faith in Jesus Christ, that faith will be reflected in the transformation of our lives as we follow him. 
And Peter presents two analogies of how we are transformed. And this transformation, both of these apply to us, to everyone. I want to be clear on that. And I want to look at each one in turn. So as we look at each one, think about what it means for you in your life. The first is that you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Verse 4 begins, as you come to him. And this language describes an ongoing process. As we continue to draw nearer and nearer to Christ throughout our lives, we participate in a lifelong process of transformation. Becoming more and more like Jesus, the living stone who is our cornerstone. This transformation is only going to be complete once we get to heaven. We understand that. Until then, we are going to be living stones that occasionally, or more than occasionally, mess up and need to be reset in our spiritual house by the master builder, who is always faithful to restore us when we truly turn away from our sins and ask for forgiveness. So Peter says that we are like living stones, like Jesus, the living stone, and that we are being built into a spiritual house, which is Christ's universal church throughout the centuries and across the ages. This analogy is very clear. We must be built together. We must be growing in Christ together. We must be literally being unified together by Jesus Christ, or else we are not a church. We are not a spiritual building. We're just a bunch of rocks lying around in a pile or some stone out in a field somewhere. The house, the construction comes from being carefully set on top of and beside and beneath other living stones other believers in Jesus Christ. And that setting is done by the master builder. All throughout our walk with Christ, we are being shaped and smoothed, and the mortar is being carefully placed and filled in so that ultimately we blend perfectly together within the walls of the spiritual house that we are a part of. If you picture the building of a, of a stone wall, and I picture kind of the the loose field stone kind of style or dress stone, you know, that's there's slightly different color, different shapes and so forth. And, and it really takes some work to bring them together. If you picture that being built while the construction is taking place, right, the topmost layer is always going to look a little rough. The site's always going to be a little messy. That's just construction. If a church is truly a construction zone, there's going to be a little bit of roughness at the top. There's going to be a little bit of mess on the sides as things are getting cleaned up. And it's hard to see. We see that mess and say, oh, what is this? What's the deal? And it's only when we're finished and they see that the end result is beautiful. That is the work of a master. And it looks like each stone has been made for its exact spot. And that really just reflects the ability of the master to get the right stone, the right spot, the right shaping, the right mortar, and make it look that way. Well, Jesus is building a part of his spiritual house here at the corner of Clipper and Mariner in this building. And that portion is being built from all the stones who are presently here, carefully set on top of those stones who came before us. And God willing, 
years from now, new stones will be set on top of us. This is a process that only takes place within the context of a church, where we are surrounded by other believers. And that is why there is no such thing as effective, long-term, go-it-alone Christianity. As the construction continues on this part of Christ's universal church, we are preparing ourselves to come together this fall to examine the many excellent ways that God has worked through this church in the past and to look at the amazing opportunities he has laid before us in the present and to give consideration to the beautiful future that I am confident he has in store for us. And so part of that preparation is that we are asking every adult and youth to be in prayer for the next 40 days, starting tomorrow. This is prayer of preparation. This is prayer to help each of us individually and all of us collectively to get off of our personal agenda for the church and move on to God's agenda. To borrow Peter's analogy, it is to prepare us so that we quit thinking like a rock out in the middle of a field somewhere and start thinking like a stone built into a beautiful spiritual house. So to help that, I'm going to briefly pause in a moment and invite the ushers to come forward and distribute these small devotionals, 40 days of prayer. Again, if you are an adult or if you are a youth, please take one and please, please, please start praying through these tomorrow morning. They do not take long each day. But if we're going to accurately capture God's vision for Lake Ridge Baptist Church and not just collect Brian's brilliant ideas for the church, I got them. Or Pastor Neil's brilliant ideas for the church, he's got them too, right? Or your brilliant ideas for the church, and I know you've got them too. But if we're going to get God's brilliant ideas for the church, we need to prepare ourselves. So please take this seriously, and let us be a community in prayer for the next 40 days as we lead up to our first congregational conversation on September 11th. So I'll stop talking for just a moment. All right, we miss anybody? Raise your hand if you need one. So I'll thank you in advance for praying and for preparing yourselves, because it is only as a unified body that we can fully live up to Christ's calling to be like living stones, to be built up in that spiritual building. Our Christian experience is not ultimately about being an awesome rock in a field somewhere. It is about being stones lovingly built into God's household. Peter's second analogy is one that we discussed a little bit last week, and so the good news is I didn't explore it a lot last week because I knew it was coming up again this week. Right? And it's about being priests. Verse 5 continues that as we come to Christ, we are being built to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So the important thing to remember is that every single person here who has accepted 
Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior is a priest. Whether you are seven or 57 or 107, you are a priest. It is not just something for the ordained ministers in the room. And Peter says that as priests, we are to make spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Well, what on earth does that mean? Let me begin by reassuring you that these are spiritual sacrifices, so you do not need to kill any animals or sprinkle any blood anywhere. Right? For some of you, that might be a disappointment, but for me, that is a huge relief. I don't really like to get messy. So what do these acceptable sacrifices look like? Well, two New Testament passages speak very clearly to our sacrifices. One is Hebrews 13, verses 15 and 16. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So this passage lays out two things that we should be sacrificing to God. The first one is praise. And praise is a great one. This should be very simple for us to do. The thing that's great about this is this is a sacrifice we can make no matter what our age is, no matter how much money we have, no matter what our health is, we can all be sacrificing praise to God. And it comes in lots of forms, right? It comes in singing along to worship songs while you're cooking dinner, while you're riding in the car, while you're here at church, right? It means throwing yourself into worship songs, even if it's maybe not your favorite song, right? But you're still praising God, and so it makes it special. It comes in praying, and and when you pray, and I hope that you are trying to make a habit of praying at least once or twice a day, that you take time to praise God, Last week, we talked about his many excellencies. If you're in the late service, we even had audience participation. We, we had Sermon 2.0 in the late service. It was pretty cool. Uh, we talked about his many excellencies. And so take time each day to just thank and praise God for these things like his mercy and his love and his grace and his power and his patience and his righteousness and his justice and his knowledge and his wisdom and on and on. The list never really ends. We never run out of things to praise God for, but if you get stuck in a rut, what I normally do, as I've said before, is I go back to the book of Psalms, because the psalmists really understood how to praise God. The second sacrifice is doing good and sharing what we have. And this word is sacrifice, right? So that implies that it's not necessarily what we want or are comfortable with. Sacrifice means there may be some discomfort involved. There may be some pain involved. And it's saying it isn't enough to just pray really, really eloquently to God, but that we need to be giving generously and sacrificially of our time and our treasure to care for others. Not because it earns us our salvation, right? None of these sacrifices earn us our salvation. That would be impossible. But it is because we are so overjoyed about having received our salvation to the cross of Christ. That's why we should be eagerly wanting to share of what we have, whether it is time, whether it is treasure, whether it is both, whatever we can give 
to care for those among the body of Christ who are in need. And that looks very different for different people, depending on where you are. It could be caring for a neighbor. It could be working through the church. It could be working through relief organizations. And the other great passage that describes our sacrifice is Romans 12.1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Well, this is a little bit more encompassing, isn't it? Because ultimately, we are told to offer up our whole lives to God. We are to be living sacrifices. Now, a non-living sacrifice would be we're guaranteeing we're going to die. This is not targeting us in that direction, right? This is a commitment of our life. Now, to be holy and acceptable, it has to be one of holiness, and devotion to God. And then as we offer up all of ourselves, all of our time, all of our talents, all of our treasure, and we do it with the right spirit and the right attitude, never to gain the applause of those around us, never to benefit ourselves, but for the glory of the God who saved us from sin and despair. That is what we are called to do. So what kind of sacrifices are you making? And are they acceptable? Now, I note that our gifting is different. Our capabilities are different. Our callings are different. Our sacrifices are going to look different. My sacrifices will look different from your sacrifices. Not everyone is called to be a full-time minister. Not everyone is called to be a missionary in the field. Not everyone is called to be out leading evangelical crusades. Not everyone is even called to be a Sunday school teacher, but we are each called to something. And we are to be committed to that. We are to be making ourselves living sacrifices so that as we, as we work and as we play and as we go to school, we are working for God. We are playing for God. We are going to school for God. We're devoting our lives to the glorious God who who loved us long before we loved him. We're sharing freely of our gifts and our talents and our treasures to build up God's kingdom here in Lake Ridge, Virginia, and to the ends of the earth. Are you making yourself a living sacrifice? Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are so excited and pleased that you love us so much that you give a way to pass through the gates of righteousness, though we do not deserve it. And Lord, as we accept your Son as our Lord and Savior, you call us into a life of transformation and a life of sacrifice and a life of joy. So Lord, I ask that we would be faithful in growing together as a body, that we would be faithful in working together, that we would be faithful in sacrificing our praise, our time, our talents, and our treasure for your glory. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.